Hello and welcome to the Green Majority Bonus Show. I want to really quickly thank, we have a couple of new members here. We've got uh, Tom Sheneman, Colin Richards, and Jim Quinn, who all signed up as our newest uh, patrons. Uh, also, Devin uh, Arbuthnot and Katie Harper both recently upped their pledges as well. Thank you so much to all those. Uh, we have a bunch of new, really great stuff coming, and we're going to have uh, some input, hopefully, from you on that, which is the poll that was posted on today's show uh, about the type and format of the show uh, that we want to see going forward as we're about to roll out some changes coming up over the next month or two. Uh, thank you so much for that. Check out the poll. Please do. It'll just take you a minute. We would really appreciate your input on that and, uh, and it will benefit you directly as well. So thank you to that. Thank you for signing up for the poll. Thank you for being a member. Thank you for considering being a member, which you can do right now at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash green majority. Listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Darren Kaster, and uh, we are uh, in a very rare situation right now because I am sans both Sabina and Stefan. So there's going to be nobody to confuse my voice with today, uh, supposedly. So in in lieu, uh, unfortunately, we did have uh, we did have a, a gentleman named Bear Standing Tall also, uh, who is going to be joining us today. We are very much going to be, and I think I talked about this on a previous show. Uh, I was very excited to talk about him because uh, he's uh, teaches essentially uh, well. He teaches a, a range of skills having to do with uh, indigenous knowledge, and uh, uh, has a, he does a workshop on how to commute better uh, with First Nations people on a bunch of interesting things. So I did pr- a preview that I think last week uh, he was unable to make it this week we're going to rebook him in his steed however uh, Jeff Donner has been kind enough our arts, arts and culture correspondent to come back in thank you uh, for having me back on and uh, and help f- uh, save you all from me talking to myself for an hour <laughs> uh, by providing us some wonderful guests so he will be uh, introducing our two guests today in a little bit but we have Bob Eisenberger uh, from uh, Water Docs and one of the filmmakers uh, who will also be introduced uh, in the middle section of the show uh, to talk about the Water Docs Film Festival uh, that's going to be coming up because uh well, that's actually very topical because as we get into our news section here, water is one of the things we're going to be talking about. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons uh, is because our first uh, news item up this week is that Trump's EPA budget proposal targets climate and lead cleanup programs, uh, not least of which uh, several uh, laws in the U.S. that uh, protect waterways. Uh, specifically those designed to prevent air and water pollution, uh, specifically around lead, but also more generally. Uh, and then also um, a, a lot of regulations. You know, he wants to cut two regulations for every one he wants to put in. Uh, we don't know how that math will will balance out, but uh, there's a lot on the chopping block here. So before I get into the details, I want to sort of put two really important things in your mind as we're going through the actual details of the proposal. First of all, it is a proposal. Uh, there's not a guarantee that this will go through in its current form. Um, so hold on that a little bit, uh, because even some, and you say, well, you know, the Republicans control everything right now, but there's even, there's a lot of moderate Republicans who answer to, uh, a, a bit of a wider base than some of the other ones. And some of those people have water, it turns out, <laughs> uh, and, uh, constituents who are paying attention. So, um, so that, this is not a sure thing, but what, what is absolutely certain, um, because there's two claims we're going to talk about here uh, that are that are uh, being talked about uh, is that there's basically two 
groups who are affected when we talk about these sorts of things. You know, he wants to save money here. So I'm not even going to go, because we talk about this every week, I'm not even going to go into the obvious situation of, well, it's going to cost us a lot more to deal with the impacts of climate change than it is to prevent climate change. That's not uh, hyperbole. That's been verified uh, by lots of people with degrees longer than my name. Um, And uh, that's not really up for debate. What is also, though, not really talked about, though, is that when we're talking about these sorts of things, you know, air and water cleanup uh, is that when we're talking about, for instance, the protection for uh, the protections for things like spills and oil pipelines. Well, it's really important to remember that uh, these pipelines don't go through nice neighborhoods. They go through poor neighborhoods. And there was a really funny example of that last last year, two years ago, a uh, story we covered that I remember. It just stuck out. It just stood out as one of those. I sort of like I have like a bookmarks file in my brain um, and it stood out. And I went, I was like, oh, I'm going to put this one in the bookmark because it was so like brazen. Like it's something we talk about a lot on the show, but it was just like a brazen. Like you actually got the person to say it. It was like my, my other favorite one that I go to all the time, Jeff, uh, where I'm talking about the Nestle CEO and his, and his mm-hmm. then yes. sort of retracted statement about water is not a human right. Like, well, then you're literally saying people don't have a right to life. I wonder what your, you know, your anti-abortion Republican friends would say about that if they were intellectually con- or ideologically consistent. They're frequently not, so never mind. But, uh, you know, there you go. And But when the, the story was, was that, you know, there was a there was an oil pipeline that was going to go through his estate. And he said, no. And, he, and they, they asked him, I said, well, what about <laughs> what about all the pipelines you want to put through other people's estate? He's like, well, that's not my problem. <laughs> hmm. You know, it's my property value that's at stake here. That's, you know, well, they, you know, constituents just like I am. That was essentially his response. Constituents just like I am have a right to speak up and, and say no. And then they'll hopefully not do it. He said, yeah, but not all of them own companies and have giant, you know, buddies who are throughout the government and fund most of these people who make the laws campaigns. Uh, it's a little bit different when you speak up. So these are anytime you cut back environmental regulation, it's just not um, – this is not sort of across the board. It's not distributed. It's specifically targeting poor uh, communities, uh, largely immigrant communities, whether they're poor or not, and First Nations uh, places for um, for people's homes to be. Uh, because, well, you know, it's just a field that they fish and live on. It's not like there's condos there. So there's nothing really there. I mean, who cares if we put an oil pipeline through it? Stop complaining. Um, <laughs> so what does this mean in deal? So those, so keep that in mind. First of all, these are only running through uh, certain people's neighborhoods and the only certain people are going to be affected by it. So the White House is proposing, well, how, the, how bad is this going to be? They're proposing to slash a quarter, 25% of the U.S. EPA budget, overall annual budget, targeting climate change programs and those designed to prevent air and water pollution like lead contamination. Um, I would love to get farther without making further commentary, but let's talk about lead for a second. Uh, there's a long history of a direct uh, link between uh, lead uh, pipes and criminality, right? So there was a surge. Uh, there was a surge of uh, sort of like crime throughout crime statistics. This was sort of late Clinton. Um, and it was eventually partially uh, there was two causes. One of them was the whole fiasco with the, uh, you know, targeting of black communities with uh, crack cocaine and this sort of thing. And there's a whole like drug war, fake racist nonsense going on there. Uh, but this was also a time when they're putting in tons and tons of lead pipes. And then like 15 years later, all of a sudden they have all this juvenile delinquency is what they called it. Well, it was eventually linked that uh, as they like to call it, and this is actually one of my favorite expressions, uh, antisocial behavior uh, was linked to <laughs> lead contamination. Um, <laughs> so Good luck rolling that back for for your society. Uh, The 23-page 2018 budget proposal aims to slice environment regulation by 25% uh, to about $6.1 billion and staffing by 20% to about $12,400. And it's really important that this is done not as a cost-saving measure. 
remember, we're talking about Trump here. He's going to save you a lot of money. It's being done explicitly for the purpose of redirecting this money to the military because we're defenseless people. We only have 300,000 nukes. Uh, they were sent to uh, the EPA for proposal. They're going to make their counteroffer. But, of course, uh, someone who set a record for suing the EPA is now in charge of the EPA. So we're not uh, we're not really scratching our heads as far as what he's going to do about that. There may be some back and forth on some of the details, uh, n- no doubt, I think. Um, and that is evidenced by the fact that simply it's not even that, that uh, Scott Pruitt is going to give any pushback on this. But just that Trump is so incredibly incompetent that there's going to be like obvious things that are just dumb in there, even for Republicans that they're not going to want. So um, – um, and so we'll see how that goes. So one of the other areas being cut as well is grants to help Native American tribes combat pollution. It'll be cut 30 percent um, because, you know, they really they have too much, Jeff. Those First Nations communities really just, you know, they're just welfare queens. Um, and, uh, you know, they can clean up their own damn water. Uh, EPA, you know, as long as we let them have it. Uh, EPA climate protection program is also being cut uh, specifically around uh, methane, um, which, uh, of course, we won't go. I'm tempted to, but we won't get into a climate lesson. But let's just say that's bad uh, would be cut 70 percent to twenty nine million dollars. I would also cut funding for Brownfield's uh, industrial site cleanup uh, by almost half, 42 percent and reduce funding for enforcing pollution laws. That I don't know. That just really seems like a head scratcher to me. You're already gutting the laws. Why would you bother gutting the enforcement? I I don't know. Or just gut the enforcement and don't bother cutting the laws. It it seems this is, and I'm sort of being funny, but I'm sort of not. Like this is sort of like incompetent slash and burn politics. Uh, in addition to being slash and burn politics, um, and as well, thirty other uh, seven uh, programs are going to be cut. So. Uh, I don't know. So the the connection I wanted to go here is that the, this is a really good example, and specifically around the brownfield, uh, brownfields, which is uh, essentially this is site remediation, right? It's when they uh, say there's a, a Union Carbide disaster uh, is a famous example of a chemical plant that blew up and and uh, tons of people died and and toxic exposure and all this sort of thing. Well, these are programs designed. Brownfields mean you know remediating this and pulling all sorts of terrible toxins and things out of the soil. Um, is that this is a, this is a form of socializing the costs, right? And so there was an interesting story uh, this week about how uh, Walmart is actually undergoing a surge of they're they're actually hotbeds for um, uh, for crime, and it was for, for a very very interesting reason. And I'll, you'll see where the relation here is coming in a second. But so one of the things that Walmart has been excessively good at doing, of course, they want to cut costs. Um, and you think, okay, well, security. Why would you cut costs on security? Because they're stealing product, right? Is it not cheaper to employ security guards than have people steal? Actually, it turns out it's not uh, because one of the things that happens is, uh, for instance, so uh, Walmart is one of the biggest welfare queens in the country because they pay their employees so low that those employees have to go on food stamps. Well, food stamps is a government taxpayer funded program to help feed people. So what they've successfully done is they're they're legally paying people with jobs so low that the government, that means you taxpayer, is now subsidizing. So we're, all those people are now subsidizing Walmart's employees, right? So when you go there, I'm like, well, I'm going to save $1.99 on, on fabric softener. Yeah, but you're giving them $8 to pay cops to make 50 bucks an hour to go police the Walmart stores instead of them paying somebody, you know, what they would pay $8 an hour, you know, maybe you should be paid $25 an hour to do it, to do the same job, but they don't care because it's all about socializing the cost. So all of this stuff, uh, if you're, you know, a, a quote unquote right winger, whether or not you identify that way, if you, if you're cheering these cuts, um, you're just bad at math, folks. I'm really sorry. You're just bad at math. 
Uh, and that's the long-term story. Um, another one here uh, that we'll get into before we go to our first break as well is the, uh, the, the Canadian Association of Petroler Producers, another excellent industry leader at socializing their costs and privatizing their profits, uh, is wants to recycle carbon tax revenues back to the oil industry. That's a proposal here. So we're going to carbon tax. We want to put enough for a price on carbon uh, so that we can you know, try and push, you know, use market forces and, and not pick the winners and all these buzzwords that people like to use. Um, you know, away from that. So what should we do with that money? Well, I know. Let's give it back to the, <laughs> let's give it back to the industry that's creating the thing that we don't want uh, or we're at least trying to decentivize and get off of. Uh, so their argument is that now is uh, not the time to be adding costs to the oil industry, especially with lower cost uh, investment coming in from the U.S. I would say unless Trudeau is willing to come out and say, I'm going to beat Trump at the regulation and environment slashing business, um, you're not going to beat Trump in that game, right? So I really don't understand um, and, and if this was a year ago, I might've even been skeptical that Trudeau would go for this. Seeing what we've seen over the last year, I'm not at all skeptical that he would go for this, uh, especially with being able to use Trump as the excuse, uh, for it. Um, but it's not, there's no indication that this will be accepted. It was just sort of leaked, um, or not leaked, but it was, they, they didn't exactly want it talking, uh, talked about, this was a, a Greenpeace did an investigation here. Um, but, uh, essentially you know, if, the, if your argument is, well, we're being beat out by U.S. competition, don't add costs, and they're about to go through several billion dollars worth of slashing uh, regulations, then the only way to keep up with them, like this wouldn't even keep, this wouldn't even do anything, right? This would set you say, well, we have a carbon tax, so this would essentially take the carbon tax away. The market force was still there, but we're going to take all the revenue and give it back to you. So let's, for the sake of simplicity, let's say the math is even, and they get their money back, or even half of their money back. Um, that's not going to go anywhere near if somebody else is saying, well, we're not doing a carbon tax, we're not doing that, and we're going to take away a bunch of other regulations. There's no way for that math to balance, right? So you're going to lose to the Americans anyway. This, to me, their argument, and this is one of the funny things I love about oil industry groups, is if you actually like sort of understand the context, and folks, this is why we do the show, because uh, not everybody has time to read this stuff, um, is if you actually understand the context into which they're making their arguments, usually it ends up being a really good argument for the opposite of the thing they're asking for. <laughs> American competition is getting, you know, so hard that we're, we're concerned about the, the future of us being able to dig this stuff up. And we're already getting a giant government subsidy. And they're about to slash all the regulations. But yeah, give us 50 bucks and we'll be totally competitive again. This will drive Canada's economy. I, I, I really don't get it. Uh, we've got about two minutes left in the section. I do have one other um, story, but I was just wondering if anybody sitting in the studio had anything to say about any of that stuff. The piece that struck me uh, – Sorry, I should introduce you. This is Bob Eisenberg, by the way. Sorry. Thanks. Um, the piece about that last uh, uh, item of news you, you talked about is that essentially what I hear them saying is, um, OK, we're not going to make you – not do that um, uh, the, the carbon taxing that you're you're talking about, but what we really want to, to do is have the end consumer pay for our R and D, right? You know, which they're already paying for today in today's economic model, uh, and yet oh, this is an opportunity for us to get somebody else to pay that part of our bill, uh, which is loading more and more onto the backs of the consumers. So I, I really think that's a, a, a good example of a bit of a shell game going on. Mm -hmm. That nice uh, pun there, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> shell game. I love it. <laughs> um, 
Not conscious, I will have to say, but, it, but, but it's there, isn't it? Uh, and uh, uh, it, it's an example of what's going on more and more uh, in these times. So I, it just does not register well with me. Well, and to, and to hear the way that they're speaking, I mean, it sounds they, – they talk as if they're a nationalized entity, right? I mean, it kind of sounds – this sounds like the OPG or something like that, right, where – if you were if we were talking about a government thing and this was actually like part of the government and the government itself owned all these oil fields and say look you know we may not even want to be in this position but our hands are tied and we have to we have to worry about ourselves I, this would be a much harder thing to to argue right because like like it or lump it we're we're lock stock and barrel tied into this thing right we're we're all roped together and going over the waterfall we got to figure something out and, and I'm I'm a realist right I'd be willing to have that conversation if that's just the reality right you know stopping climate change is is great but I don't I think it would actually make climate change worse to actually bankrupt the country right because then all, there's all sorts of scatter on effects and I think that would actually be worse so you know I'm willing to be a realist about that but they're not they're private companies <laughs> and and I love how they love to sort of play the patriotism card in some situations when it's convenient um say hey this is all about canadians and you know you're anti-oil therefore you're anti-canadian um when it's convenient and then socialize a bunch of costs and then turn around and run home with all the money um well while, while communities are, are filling up with pollution that oh by the way now the government aka again the taxpayer uh now have to go and clean up after them i mean it's 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 despicable or it's correctly assessing the bad sort of state of understanding of the general public, and I fear it may be the latter. Uh, but I think that's all the time we have for in this section. Thank you for introducing yourself, uh, Bob, and jumping in there. I was I was concerned I'd be going for nearly 20 minutes on my own, so I really appreciate that. Uh, nobody Bob, wants Bob that. Bob to the rescue. But Bob to the rescue. Uh, so we're going to go now to our first music break. We'll be coming back where I'm actually going to sit back and relax and enjoy the interview because uh, despite having known Bob for quite some time, uh, I don't I haven't looked anything into this year's Water Docs. I left this entirely in Jeff's capable hands, so I will be as much an audience for the next section as everybody else here. So why don't we go into our tech booth and find out what we're going to listen to. And we are back. Oh, that was nice. We're back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Darren Kaster. We are Psalms, my usual uh, panel today. No Stefan, no Sabina. Uh, but we do have Jeff. Jeff Donner, our arts and culture correspondent, who will be uh, directing the next section of the uh, this next section of the show almost entirely. The only thing I will interject before we get there was there's a very important poll I'm going to be posting on today's uh, program. It is a poll regarding the uh, format of future content of this program. We're considering releasing the podcast in a series of smaller sections and i want to know how long a show you would listen to if you were one of our podcast audience and how often you would want it so we're going to be making that decision soon if you are one of our podcast listeners or if you're not a podcast listener because the show is too long which i've some feedback we do get hey we love your show but i can't get through an hour and a half understandable uh then this is the week you're going to want to go to the website go to the show post for today uh leave us your vote on what format this will be highly uh, referenced when making our incoming and upcoming decision as to how the show will be produced going forward. So please do go green, green today. Look at today's show post and vote for that. Other than that, Jeff Donner. Thank you for having me back, Sam. Um, I usually share this role with the incomparable Andrea Battersby, co-founder of the Bureau of Power and Light Art Collective, but unfortunately she couldn't be here today, uh, but she's definitely listening to the show. I know that for sure. So hi, Andrea. Um, as an arts and culture correspondent here on The Green Majority, my role is to take a look at environmental issues through an artistic lens. Uh, last week on the show, uh, water was a recurring theme, a recurring topic. We spoke about the water protectors, uh, 
I gave a nod to Bertinsky's watermark dock uh, that was a few years, about three years old now ish, something like that. Uh, and I talked about the Water Docks Film Festival coming up here in Toronto at the end of March. And I said I was going to try and get my good friend Bob on the show to talk more about that. And somehow I managed to do just that. And uh, I'm joined today by fellow Center for Social Innovation member and director of programs for not only Eco Logos Institute, but also for the Water Docks Film Festival, uh, Bob Eisenberger, welcome to the Green Majority, Bob. Thanks so much, Jeff. I really appreciate being here. Um, Bob is also joined by filmmaker Tony Wallace, who directed the Peel Project, which we'll talk more about in a moment. Um, give a give a hello to the our audience. Hello, there, Tony. thank you very much for having me. Thanks for being here. I appreciate you being with us today. Uh, so first off, let's uh, talk to Bob a little bit more about the Equal Logos Institute. Tell us a bit more about that. Sure thing. Um, it's a, a, a local nonprofit organization which most people have never ever heard of um, because we're um, much better known these days by our premier project, Water Docks Film Festival. But uh, Ecologos was begun back in 1999 by uh, Stan and Miriam Gibson uh, as a way to address their lifelong passion for environmental issues and concerns about the state of the world. And uh, they uh, um, began by interviewing literally hundreds of uh, movers and shakers and wisdom figures around North America to, to validate the, the principles behind which they wanted to work. And it was about uh, seven years ago, um, I guess I should say in the lead up to seven years ago, uh, the organization was getting pretty grand in the, their ambitions and hopes and wanted to address every environmental issue there was any place on the planet. And finally, we gave ourselves a, a bit of a head shake and said, maybe we should start a little bit more close to home and, um, and focus on one particular issue. It was clear that water was a prime issue uh, at that time and was going to be continuing to be so. So uh, when we began to talk about what form that should take and how do we address this, how do we do our work in the world, one of our members, um, who is now the lead programmer for the festival, Melanie Howe, uh, who is a lifelong film buff, uh, talked to the rest of us about how um, important documentary filmmaking is these days and it's the storytelling of our times and it's the thing that uh, so many people um, turn to to learn more about, about the world in a very personalized way. And so we uh, decided to, to uh, create a, a film festival, uh, which began with a pilot project at a local community center. I took my own personal DVD player down. We borrowed a boombox from, uh, from the community center where we did this. And for six Thursday nights, we drew an audience that um, was very enthusiastic and very interested in the topics and loved engaging with the filmmakers that we always make it a point to bring in. And so it convinced us that this was a viable option, and we proceeded from there. Okay. Now, we're going to go a little bit more into detail about the, the Water Docs Film Festival. Uh, first, though, Water Docs itself has a couple other programs under its umbrella. Could you maybe uh, give us a couple, uh, a brief description of those? Absolutely. The fundamental of what we're about is um, the use of art in engaging um, the population in issues uh, to the point that people will be willing to take action to be a part of the solution. And so one of those that we uh, utilize is we recognize our festival is only once a year. And people have um, interests in these topics ongoing. And so we've created a program that we call Water Docs Where You Live. 
um, which is an opportunity for um, neighborhood organizations, community groups, uh, libraries to host a screening and a conversation, a structured conversation about the topic and how we uh, relate to it. Um, there's information about that on our website um, and as well as uh, about uh, the second program I'll name, which is called um, Water Docs at School Action Projects which is a really exciting opportunity for grade 8 students. There's a big unit on water in Ontario at that level. And we provide um, inquiry-based um, lesson plans that put the student at the center in terms of deciding what topic they want to uh, uh, study, what action project they want to take locally in their own community. And then we ask them, of course, being a film festival, we ask them to create a little documentary film about their work, which is so exciting to see what they're able to accomplish and how thrilled they are to make a difference. Now, I watched um, a couple of those, one in particular, which was one I think was called TAP, T-A-P-B. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a nine-minute film that was made by these the students that you're talking about. And uh, I was amazed at uh, the amount of work that they put into this and a comment that one of the teachers made that this program was so great because it compiles so many different um, – aspects or, or different mediums together into one into one documentary which is more of an engaging way for people to explore these issues and for the kids themselves to learn more in the process of, of doing it mm-hmm. as well um, was there something that a uh, shout out that you wanted to give for people who might be interested in being a part of that uh, absolutely program? thank you yes yeah. we are you know, each year we're on a hunt for um, interested grade 8 teachers who might like to uh, incorporate uh, this format inquiry based learning some of them are some of them for some teachers this is a new thing um, and uh, it's a it's a program that scan, spans most uh, much of the school year, but it's not it's not full time. There's ongoing work in terms of the project, in terms of developing um, uh, their their documentary. So um, uh, again, I would refer people to our website waterdocs.ca, uh, and you'll see the section there about the at school program. And we would love to hear from interested teachers or administrators. Principals can be a really inspiring um, a source of of uh, um, uh, motivation for teachers to get into a, a program like this. Okay. The teachers and the students both love it, so we like to keep spreading it. And we're, we're working to spread it throughout the province of Ontario. Excellent. Right on. The rest of the country maybe later. <laughs> we'll work on that. <laughs> Baby steps. Yep. Um, so I'm going to swing it back to the Water Docs Film Festival because that is a uh, – it's now in its sixth year, I understand. Absolutely. Yeah, and um, it's uh, you. You spoke a little bit about its humble beginnings and how it's come from there to now being uh, at the Ted Rogers Hot Docs Theater. Uh, it's coming at the end of this month, March 29th, I believe, is the is the opening. Yes. Um, for that, um, so of course, no film festival is complete without an opening reception. And uh, this one sounds like uh, uh, there's a lot of wonderful things on offer at this one. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, the opening night. Absolutely. And I should start by clarifying uh, the festival actually does begin on the 29th. Our official opening night is the next night, the 30th, um, uh, which is at um, that event and the rest of the official screenings are at uh, the Hot Docs Ted Rogers Cinema here in Toronto. Um, but we're we're thrilled um, to have uh, our opening night screening um, is uh, the Peel Project, which is uh, you'll hear about uh, uh, more detail here in a second. Um, and um, uh, it's it's a the story of uh, the last one of the last intact river systems left in North America. 
and uh, it, it's in danger of uh, being encroached by development. And so a number of artists um, uh, went to the far north to experience this land and to respond to it from their, um, uh, their own artistic perspectives. Um, and uh, so in a second, we'll ask Tony to talk in much more detail about that. Just to flesh out the rest of the evening, um, we will have an opening night reception at the Center for Social Innovation, which is um, just a short two blocks away, and uh, where you'll get a chance to see some of the actual art that was created in response to this experience. Um, and, you know, a little bit of, uh, little bit of food and beverage uh, to, enjoy, to cap out the rest of the evening. Excellent. And uh, I will be there myself, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, with that uh, and more on this project, we are joined with uh, one of the directors of the Peel Project, um, Tony Wallace. Hello. Um, so let's bring Tony into the conversation. Thank you for being here, Tony. Oh, my pleasure. Um, can you tell us a bit about the uh, Peel Project and, and the purpose? For the sure. Film? Uh, so The Peel Project is a documentary where we follow six southern Canadian artists uh, who all go up to the Peel River watershed, which is in the Yukon and spans into the Northwest Territories. And we did a 20-day canoe trip through the watershed, uh, asking the artists to produce work on the trip, um, experience the landscape, meet the people and come across the communities, and then take that experience and digest it and put it into a series of artworks um, that are now completed. This trip happened in 2014. So after that, everyone had about a year to produce some artwork. Um, and now we're very excited to show the film in Toronto with the artwork so people can see the full scope of that project. Now, I saw the trailer... Um, which is absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's stunning landscape. The cinematography is 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 beautiful. Um, the uh, one scene that I'd mentioned before the show that I'm I'm a I'm a musician and uh, I love to be in the outdoors in the wilderness. And often I've been on a lake in the middle of nowhere and thought, what a what an amazing landscape to have a string quartet come up and play and. <laughs> And then, lo and behold, I see, you know, this, this trailer and there's a scene with you in the canoe going down this beautiful river with this ma- canyon, I think, mm-hmm. that you were in. Can, yeah. Playing a violin yeah. in the canoe was quite incredible. Tell me about that experience. Uh, so. That was a wonderful experience. So I'm on the trip. I'm a musician, a composer, and a sound artist. So myself and Callan Field, who's a photographer on the trip, is a beautiful photographer. He actually um, chartered a plane after the trip and has some gorgeous aerial photographs um, that will be shown at the CSI and the Annex, so people can take a look at those. Um, but we paddled into, it was in the Peel Canyon, to a little cave in the side of the canyon and kind of roughed some eddies to get in there and very delicately played some music, and took some photographs. And it was beautiful. It was gorgeous. It sounded amazing. Um, it was one of my personal highlights from the trip, for sure. Excellent. Yeah. Cool. I, I can't wait to see, just just based on that trailer alone, I can't wait to see the yeah. the whole thing. It would be an incredible experience. Mm-hmm. And the, all the artists, if I take a second, so yeah, it's Callan sure. Field, who's yeah. a photographer from Calgary, spent some time in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carly Baker, who's a wonderful writer based in Vancouver. She actually has a book of short stories that got released yesterday called Bad Endings. That's oh, excellent. beautiful. She's a really phenomenal writer. Um, there's two artists from Calgary. There's a mirrorless painter and a watercolor painter, Daniel J. Kirk and Katie Green. Um, a glass artist from Toronto named Aurora Darwin, who's at the Harborfront Center. She produces beautiful glass sculptures. Uh, myself, who does music. And then uh, there's a co-director producer named Calder Chevry, who's out in Vancouver, who's an outdoors guide filmmaker. And so that's, that's the base of the crew. And I understand that you'll be actually performing... 
um, at the opening I will, yes. of the screening. Of the actually, screening. Actually at the screening. Yes, at the Hot Doc Cinema. So, so live music at the screening. Yes, that's, that's about a half a hour one. before the film, I'll be doing uh, a collection of some of the music that was written on trip. Um, and then also was used to score the film. Excellent. Now you did touch. Bob actually just sort of touched on the um, the exhibit uh, that's going to be at the opening itself. That's going to be at the Center for Social mm-hmm. Innovation. Could you tell us a little bit more about what people can expect, expect to, to see, see there? For yeah. sure. So we're going to have a collection of artwork from each of the artists. Uh, so there's a soundscape that I produced with Carly Baker, the writer. A collection of poems and short stories and audio recorded on the trip from the documentary. Um, Callan Field has a series of stills, uh, photographs, there's some portraits, there's some landscape, there's some aerial photography. There's a large scale, about a 14 foot by 4 foot watercolor painting. Cool. Um, some sketches and a collection of uh, other paintings from Daniel J. Kirk and Aurora Darwin is going to have a series of glass pieces, which will only be on display for the, the 30th, the night of the reception, uh, just because of space bearings, but come for those because those are okay. they're stunning. And I understand the rest will be up until April 7th. That is, is correct. correct. Yeah. About a week and a half. Okay, so if you can't make it to the opening reception, which I hope everybody who's in the Toronto area can, mm-hmm. um, please come by up until the uh, April 7th to, to look at this work and, and to learn more about this project as well through the lens of of the art that was created on this actual trip right yeah. like that's that's incredible yeah. uh thank you so much tony um is there any where can people go to find out more uh people want to find more about the film then go to the peel.ca but if mm-hmm. they want to learn more about the peel river watershed and what's going on there's a long history of legal battles and fight to protect this region which is one of the reasons why we chose to go up there and there's a supreme court case the end of march um, revolving around what is going to happen with the Peel River. Um, and so I believe that's the 22nd or 23rd of March, and CPAW's Yukon has been a big um, proponent for this. So they're having a bunch of events in Ottawa around that. So you can go to protectpeel.ca to learn mm-hmm. more about um, the Peel issues. Awesome. Thank you so much for ha- My pleasure. being Thanks on the show, Tony. I really appreciate me. it. It was so very, so very last minute, and I, it was such a wonderful occurrence that we were able to have you both on the show. Um, thank you. Bob, just a real quick recap of the rest of the festival. we got just a, a few minutes left. Sure thing. We're uh, quite excited by um, the program that's been uh, put together by our programming team this year. Uh, there, we always uh, establish a theme of each evening. So um, we actually, as I mentioned a minute ago, um, begin the entire festival with a pre-festival screening. Uh, Wednesday night, we always have uh, a screening that's organized by the student chapter of the Ontario Waterworks Association at the U of T. And uh, they're screening a film called River Blue, uh, which is about the damage that the uh, fashion industry does uh, to our water systems uh, globally. Mm. Uh, And that looks uh, like a hard-hitting and very exciting, uh, very interesting uh, film. On uh, Friday, um, of course, opening night is on the Thursday, the the, uh, 30th. On Friday, it's the night that we present uh, the winners of our Ontario 150 Film Challenge Awards Night. Yeah, now what what is that? So finally, we feel like we're growing up. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Two years ago, or last year, I guess, was the first year we uh, finally were in a place to be able to issue a call for submissions for filmmakers who have created films about water um, and particularly around uh, water in Ontario, to um, uh, submit uh, films for consideration for our, uh, prizes and for screenings. And so that's the night we're going to see uh, uh, the film that was uh, chosen as uh, best film. is a, a title called um, Sea of Life, and it's an mm-hmm. uh, exploration of who's going to save the, 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 the world's waters. Uh, as well as uh, the runner-up, a film uh, called In Season, and an honorable mention film because we just couldn't let everything go. 
uh, we had to recognize these valuable uh, filmmakers. On Saturday, we have both a, an afternoon matinee called Standing on Water. Um, we, we, uh, I'd like to point out, we, we, not all of our films are the dire doom and gloom films. We uh, recognize that people respond because it's uh, how they connect emotionally with water mm -hmm. uh, that is going to move them forward. And so this is a good uh, example of um, someone who faced a personal challenge and has grown significantly with uh, his relationship with water. That evening, Saturday evening, there are um, um, two films about uh, traditional knowledge and um, managing um, water um, in pre-scientific ways uh, that just look very fascinating. One from Australia, one from, South from uh, Kenya. Uh, it's made by a South African. Mm -hmm. And on uh, Sunday, we close with a, a another matinee. Um, something that's becoming a favorite is a collection of short films because there's a lot of good, excellent work being done uh, in films that don't quite yet become features. So we're looking forward to that. Excellent. Um, I, I understand that this is a nationwide broadcast, so not everybody will be able to uh, be in the Toronto area at that time. Uh, for those that are, please make a point of... Um, uh, supporting this uh, wonderful uh, film festival. And for those that aren't, uh, please go to uh, the Peel, Peel Project. The Peel.ca. The Peel.ca. And um, also, Bob, give us uh, uh, some links that people across the country can go to to learn more about these issues if they can't necessarily make it to the festival. Absolutely, and we would love it if, uh, if people do exactly that. Um, you're going to find all this information on our website, waterdocs, W-A-T-E-R-D-O-C-S dot C-A. Um, all the details about the festival that are coming up and all the information about the rest of our programs as well, both the Water Docs Where You Live, uh, which we love to support community groups in, and the At School program, which is a growing in excitement for, for grade 8 kids. Um, uh, and uh, if you have uh, questions, I can give my email if you'd like, uh, uh, just um, bob.eisenberger at ecologos.ca. That's E-C-O-L-O-G-O-S dot C-A. And uh, we'd love to hear from folks. This is a, a vital I issue for all of us. Uh, as you said earlier, it's a, it's a life and death issue, um, uh, literally in some parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it takes all of us to, to make a difference. Bob Eisenberger, he is the not only a fellow member of the Center for Social Innovation, also director of programs for the Eco Logos Institute and the Water Docs Film Festival. And we're also joined by Tony Wallace, co-director of the Peel Project, uh, musician, composer, wears many hats. Uh, pleasure to have you both on the show. I'm Jeff Doner, co-founder of the Bureau of Power and Light Art Collective and also the Arts and Culture Correspondent here on the Green Majority, CIUT 89.5. Thank you so much, Sarah, and I'm going to throw it right back to you. All right, and so uh, we're going to go to our second final music break. Come back, talk about some food. Uh, we're going to keep on this water theme because uh, it turns out uh, a number of Quebec uh, microbreweries may be the, the last line of defense here against uh, the Energy East pipeline uh, as it crosses through a number of waterways uh, for your beer. So if you're a beer mm. drinker uh, in Canada, Quebec makes some fabulous beers, uh, if you're of legal drinking age, of course. And uh, <laughs> that, that this is now with a conversation. Uh, so a bit of a food and beverage section at the end. We're also going to be talking about some uh, the, the newest attempt to get meat eaters off their burgers with some uh, supposedly very meat-like burgers. We'll talk about that in just a second. But first, our second and final music break. Okay. Are 
are back. You're listening to The Green Majority. We're now in the final section. I'm your host, Darren Caster. We're going to be talking a little bit about food and beverage. Uh, two very popular items for food and beverage, one being hamburgers, the other one's being beer. This is a staple of uh, college campuses the world over, I think. Um, and there's two different ways we're going to talk about it. I'm hoping that we can have a bit of a free-form discussion on this. We don't have a ton of time, uh, but we'll spend a little bit of time on it. I think we can uh, – part of my part of my efforts recently, Jeff, has been – and uh, anyone that listened to last week's bonus show will know um, – I've been taking a little bit of a, a lighter tact here with some of the content because, frankly, in the era of Trump, uh, what we have to do is we can't, uh, we can't let – those forces uh, do what they want to do, which is sort of uh, exhaust us with things. Um, at the same point, we also don't want to do the opposite problem uh, and not talk about these things. So my attempt to do that is that we're going to limit uh, the amount of serious news on the show and try and balance that out with some lighter fare. If there is no lighter fare, then we won't do it. But if there's something lighter... Um, and, and just to let people know, it was... The bonus show last week was, it was the bonus show last sex week. robots. It was, yes. Yeah. There was yeah. an environment link. Yes. Um, there was actually an environment <laughs> like uh, I was going to leave that hanging in suspense there. Jeff. All right. Yeah. No. Throw it out there. Um, so anyway, so that's the point. So we're so this is intentional. Don't don't worry. We're not losing our we're not losing our cool. I did in fact have enough time to look for news, uh, but this is actually a a, tacti- a tactical attempt to help uh, inform people without exhausting them. So these are still important news stories, but we're I'm making an effort to not only talk about Trump or only talk about climate every week because even I get tired of it, frankly. So the two news items we're going to talk about, we'll do them one at a time. Maybe go around for a, couple, a round of quick comments before we move on to the second. Uh, after each one, the first one is a new company called Imp. Possible Foods, uh, which is attempting uh, yet again, I'd say for the 40th time to take on the meat industry, not uh, as activists, but through uh, capitalism, uh, which anyone knows uh, I'm not opposed to capitalism. I'm just opposed to the capitalism we have where it's crony capitalism and everything's corrupt. But actual pure idealized capitalism if that exists, is fine. Let the market decide. If you can create a better product for a cheaper price that's better for the planet, then then that's who should win. Um, so here's the challenge, of course, is that they're specifically trying to target meat eaters. And this has never been done successfully before. Uh, the company is the first one to do it. Uh, but apparently they're pretty confident they can, um, not just because they've said so, uh, but some rather large investors have gotten involved. They raised $100 million, uh, $108 million in 2015 to uh, develop a new factory after having their proof of concept. It was invested in uh, some people who are no slouches, including uh, Colsa Ventures, Google Ventures, uh, and Bill Gates. Um, So they've got some very serious financing behind them. Hmm. Apparently, the limitation right now, even though they were talking to companies like McDonald's as well, is uh, they haven't been able to scale up their production to that level yet where they could sort of supply that. They're hoping this new factory will address that problem. Um, But it involves specifically around – there's a number of stuff. Anyone who eats uh, sort of veggie burgers uh, or fake meat, of which I consume both, uh, are familiar with. A lot of these are pretty common. It's got potato. It's got wheat proteins. They have Japanese yams and xanthagum and things that you're used to reading on a number of packages. Um, uh, Soy-based protein – specifically called uh oh i'm not even gonna pronounce this well lee limoglobin i think that's it Uh, it's a great band name it's the trick yeah it would be fine so here's the trick so what they do is they they uh, this is this is how they get it to to look and supposedly taste although i can't confirm uh like meat is that it's uh the this protein is sort of given to yeast to 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 like grow it and it comes out in a form that has a particular texture uh and uh and color composition such that it quote unquote bleeds um sort of trying to get that uh, ability to give a veggie burger that sort of genuine uh medium rare taste and feel where it's softer in the center a little bit 
crispier on the outside. That's a texture has always been a really big problem for, for veggie mm-hmm. burger and fake meat products. Uh, I eat TVP type products, which is mm-hmm. vegetable protein products. The texture is really odd. It tastes sort of like gum that isn't chewy. Mm-hmm. Um, I eat it because it's good for me and because I need it dietarily and because I can't eat meat even if I wanted to a lot of the time. You know, um, can, I, can I, do you mind please, if I jump please. in for a sec there? Um, I'm, I'm sort of on the road to being um, vegetarian. I've got a lot of uh, meat and potatoes background in me to kind of work out of my system. I never thought I would ever not eat burgers ever again. Uh, Burgers and beer were like my if it were, if I had that final meal that would have been a, the banquet burger you know lots of bacon, beef, gravy on the fries and and a beer in my hand. Um, but if my wife Andrea is, has been a huge influence on me in reconsidering those those options. My high cholesterol has also kind of enforced these things. And um, initially, my transitional thing would be trying to find that same experience, but not meat. So trying to find what, how can I do that? How can I have that experience and have it not be meat? And I experimented with a lot of different things like soy-based products that are formed into what is supposed to be chicken wings or uh, burgers or whatnot. But I've come to realize that I think I have to just let go of that experience. You know what I mean? Like I'm not going to have that banquet burger experience in something else. And, and it's a tough one. And, but I see the value of doing that because – it is a good transitional thing. If you are used to having meat and used to eating a beef burger, you want to have something that satisfies a certain same texture and that kind of thing, you know? Mm. But I think ultimately, like bacon, nothing replaces bacon. <laughs> I don't care what you make it out of and what you, how, what, the coloring you put in it to make, nothing replaces bacon and nothing ever will, I don't think. Mm. You know? And so for me to try and find that replacement, I kind of have to just sort of accept that it's, I'm not just not going to have that experience anymore. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and and that's something due to my health concerns over the last year. I've, I've I mean, I don't have a choice, right? So it's 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 interesting because it's one of those things where it's a choice you don't want to make until you have to, and then when you have to make, you realize like, okay, well, you know, I'd, I'd like to do this, but did I do I really miss it that much? Nah, I don't. I don't think about. It. I don't. I don't have like you know hamburger dreams. Like it. It doesn't. It, I don't even think about. It. I'm having I, less of them. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're 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 starting to taper. It's up. it's sort of like, it's sort of like smoking. I mean, it's, I, I used to be you know well before I was ever involved with the program. I was a very heavy smoker. I started smoking when I was like 14 years old, and uh, and it was very hard to quit. But then it's like once you've quit, like, and you probably there though. was a time where you could not imagine not smoking, right? Like right. I, I smoked for 23 years, and every morning, first thing I did was have a cigarette and a coffee. I could not imagine starting my day any other way now i have i quit smoking that was about six years ago maybe or something like that and yeah. you know it's a new world i don't know so and another interesting uh, aspect they put on was that uh you know not just the carbon intensive process of producing the meat but also the and this is an angle i mean i knew about but i had it had, didn't occur to me as a rela- related issue was of course that this is also uh because of the drastically increasing amounts of meat production in, in china and india and increasing there's a global meat consumption is looking to go up about 10 to 15 percent over these last few years like this is still going 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 up is that uh, this is also leading to a severe problem with uh, re- uh drug resistant bacteria because they're giving all these antibiotics to the to the livestock mm-hmm. uh and this is encouraging um uh, resistant uh, bacteria and, and all this, which is then tra- can in some cases or, or, or is at risk of transferring to humans and creating all sorts of health problems. So mm-hmm. uh, before I move on to the next one, uh, Tony and Bob, what do you think? Do you guys eat veggie burgers? Do you eat hamburgers? Uh, would you, does this sound like a, does are you interested in this? I am a meat eater. I do eat, I do eat meat. Uh, I am interested in this. I'm kind of in the same place of Jeff of like, is it a transition thing? If you're not going to, I never understood the 
replacement meat options. Mm-hmm. Like if you're not going to do it, you know, like fat and I, I, I say this as a meat eater, someone who still does eat meat, <laughs> and so maybe it's a bit critical. I don't know. Um, and if you still want that hamburger feel, go for it. And it's a good alternative. Um, I'm under the mindset where I would like to wean off the meat eating, um, lab grown meat, and that whole development world is something that like I would go there. So I would eat I, something because yeah. it's like you, mm-hmm. it's more controlled. You know what's going into it. And it's self-contained. I don't know. Less, less suffering involved along the way too. Because, yeah. you know, you're supporting a lot of uh, suffering along the way, right? Mm-hmm. Like especially with factory farming and that kind of thing. And that, that the ethical end of it has to be a part of the, the conversation too, right? Like, Bob? Absolutely. I, uh, yes to all of the above. Um, uh, and, of course, I tend to come at this with, through a, a water-related lens. Um, uh, for me, it's been a gradual process. I've, I grew up a carnivore as well. And, you know, the big juicy burger on Saturday night was uh, was a, a staple, and um, and it was a given. Um, but uh, over the years, I've uh, heard more and more about these issues. I've known a number of vegetarians and folks. I my personality is one that has trouble just laying down the law and saying, "Okay, flip the switch off," and we're now entirely over in this end of the field. Um, so, but I've learned to I, I, I happily eat vegetarian meals and and I love them a lot and prepare them sometimes myself. Um, but the thing that really struck me uh, recently, maybe six months ago, um, an internet meme came across uh, my Facebook feed and that is such, struck such a, a bell for me. Um, it was a, a photograph of a billboard, and I had to go back later. I could not refind it, and I had to go back later and research it myself. But it made the point that um, uh, it, w- it was driving at the point of how water intensive um, it is to to grow meat, um, and it's just beyond the pale. Mm-hmm. And this billboard made the point: if you want to save X thousand gallons of water, and I forget the number, you can either go six months without flushing the toilet, or go three months without drinking water on a personal basis, or yeah. go without one hamburger. Wow. That really does hit home hey, when you put it like that. It does. It's a visceral reaction yeah. that I had. And so um, it, it keeps me leaning in the direction of uh, look for the vegetarian, the plant-based options um, because um, it, it's getting better and better all the time and it's more and more mandatory for the health of the planet. Well, yeah. I, I would just add, add uh, uh, Andrea's not here in the studio, but she, as I said, she is listening and she just texted with something that would be great to wrap this conversation up. With Thanks, it. Andrea. There are <laughs> new experiences to be had with plant-based foods. Mm-hmm. So, right, so what I think a, we got another great way to end that segment. We got another yeah. yes vote from from our, our absentee yes. uh, host. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Andrea at home. Okay, so we have three minutes. I'm just going to get a, a very simple, maybe with a quick uh, comment uh, roundtable on this because I want to get a vote on this one as well. Uh, the, so the question is, uh, the, so bars in Quebec are, are now joining the fight against Energy East, uh, partially uh, around the fact that the Energy East will cross 860, giant number, 860 Quebec rivers and streams, 3,000 along the one uh, uh, a 4500 kilometer long pipeline carrying 1.1 million barrels of oil, barrels of oil a day. Uh, this uh, is being joined because, of course, the, there's a very healthy uh, microbrewery uh, culture in Quebec. I enjoy a number of Quebec uh, brews. Um, do you think, just a quick up and down vote, maybe with a quick comment, do you think this angle will create, like, is this going to be effective beyond the existing climate thing? Do you think people, when people go, hey, that's my beer, Bob, we'll start with you. Mm. Absolutely, I do. I, that's, when, that's when people get energized is when it becomes personal. 
and um, uh, even you know something as a you know a Saturday night brew, uh, you know that's a pretty important uh, tr- uh, ritual for. A I lot can't of folks. eat the burger. You're going to take my beer too. Come yeah, on, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so yes, absolutely. I think that this is uh, uh, has the potential to get some really good traction. I hope it does. Jeff. Uh, Sure. Yeah, I do think we'll get some traction as well. I wonder how many farmers and other organizations are still part of that fight. It's like because it's beer and it's been more popular, it gets a vote and it gets attention. It would be nice to see you know, the full list of who's on that or who's being affected by it, not just the brewers. But yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. All right, last word, Jeff. I love beer. <laughs> That's all he had, so he wanted to save it for last. So we have a bonus show we're going to be talking about. Uh, I talk about minimum guaranteed income uh, a lot on the program. We're going to be having a little uh, informal discussion about what would you do if you were willing to live at sort of a very, very barely scraping by thing, which many artists have been doing since time immemorial. Uh, but you had that. You didn't have to worry about where your meal was coming from, and you were, you were accepting with living an extremely scrimpy uh, life. Uh, and say part of this deal was that you could spend your time giving back to society not not pulling from society but giving back to society by simply being a full-time artist who didn't have to worry about cost constraints uh but you know say you did have some amount of work you had to produce for the you know for the public or something or however it was done uh what would you do with your time that's this week's bonus show uh i think everyone knows my answer i'm very keen to hear what our panel uh, thinks about that so uh, stay tuned to that greenmajority.ca for all the links that uh, bob is talking about links for the show notes links for the stories uh, as well as how to get the podcast if you're listening on the radio but that is it for our live time thank you so much for spending an hour with us here at the Green Majority CIUT 89.5 FM. Take care. Okay, that's it for the regular show. Coming up now is the bonus show where we have a very long discussion, which is really awesome. And that's the reason it went so long. We have a really great conversation. I know the show can be a bit long, which is why we're thinking about breaking it up into formats. Um, so, if you can, though, if you're thinking, feeling like maybe you're at an hour and you're not uh, sure you have an, another 25 minutes and you pause the show here, come back to it. Uh, this is not a bonus show to miss. Uh, really fun conversation. I think very valuable conversation. And hopefully, uh, hopefully with your input on that poll about format, uh, we may be breaking up the show so it's a little more digestible for folks so you're not uh, getting overwhelmed with one really long podcast soon. So aside from that, uh, please consider being a member, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Green Majority. Check out the poll on the website. It's agreementmajority.ca. It will take you one minute. And other than that, enjoy the bonus show. Take care. All right, we're back. We're on the bonus show here, and I've got a full studio. All of my guests stuck around today. And we have uh, Steve, one of our techs, uh, who's sitting in. Uh, and uh, maybe Megan will slip in at some point, one of our other techs as well. Uh, yes, we have three techs in the studio recently. In case you hadn't noticed, it's not the same person doing various impressions. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much for sticking around. So, and they've all done a wonderful job. That's too. right. Yes. Well, thank yeah, you very excellent. much. Yes. Dis- despite, uh, despite my chaotic hand signals, which I've, <laughs> I've actually gotten pretty decent at, frankly. As far as not explaining hand signals, if, for, for having never explained my hand signals, you guys seem to figure it out pretty consistently. So that's really great. <laughs> the very handy, um, like the schedule. So yeah. the, night, the night beforehand that helps as well yeah. <laughs> so my proposal my proposed topic is um, I've spoken a number of times about guaranteed minimum income of course when I've spoken about it recently I've talked about how that should be paired with a guaranteed maximum income uh, we won't get into that right now. What we'll get into, though, I think, is the idea that if there was a guaranteed minimum income, there's going to be uh, there's a there's a quite healthy, I think, in 
in many countries. I don't think Canada is unique in this, but specifically in Canada, there's a very healthy artistic community. Uh, we have a wonderful artistic heritage to draw from, both uh, from the uh, First Nations communities and their artistic uh, historical traditions, uh, as well as the fact that we are such a multicultural country means that we have an excellent opportunity to borrow local talent to sample artistic cultures and uh, and histories and, and things from all over the world, every country on, on Earth. Um, I think we have a really wonderful opportunity here to do something with that. Now, the way that it works right now, and Jeff can get more into the details or correct me if necessary on either of those fronts, uh, but then in a lot of cases, like a lot of arts, things come through grants, right? And so what we have is these bodies who you'll submit proposals for work, and then they'll choose someone, and then those people will get funding, and then, then, then they'll do the piece, whatever it is. And maybe it's painting a bridge, maybe it's doing an installation, maybe it's doing whatever, but that's generally how it works. Um, so I think that's important for context because some people might balk at this first part. If you don't understand, that's pretty much how this already works, <laughs> which is that say we had guaranteed minimum income and you know you have to be looking for work or something like that. Say if you're out of work, um, just to make sure people don't starve and they don't go out on the street, I think it makes sense. There's a number of folks though who are already in this system of art, uh, you know artists and musicians, specifically visual artists and musicians uh, are two big camps of that, where people spend all their time chasing grants. Maybe they're doing some personal work for themselves. In the meantime, maybe they're trying to sell some stuff. Maybe they're trying to do some shows and they spend basically a lot of the rest of their time writing grants and I think we have a lot of we have I have a lot of canvas we have a whole wide country full of really awful surfaces and, and bare bones spots and, and places that could be beautified uh, and I think that it would be far cheaper to simply let people instead of you know check a box on that form every year but you know do you require government assistance this year you know one of them would be I'm looking for work and what I'm, one of them would be I'm an artist and we would have uh, bodies that would like uh, you would make proposals but instead of the winner getting grant to do it they would simply get permission to do it and they would just do it right and so this body could you know verify you know agreements with whoever owns the property and all those sorts of things and get these projects greenlighted and unleash this army of artistic talent that we have in this country to go out and and do what they're already doing but doing it on a much larger scale scale and in a way that we could all benefit i think culturally from um, so my idea was a comments on that proposal b if that proposal went ahead, what would you do with your time? Uh, and we haven't heard from from Stephen yet. So uh, what are your just initial thoughts? We can come back to you once you've had more of a chance to think about it. But right off the top of your head. I actually need another moment to think you about You need another minute? <laughs> no, minute. Room, yeah, uh, how about uh, Tony? Yeah. Um, so I'm answering what I do with it and if I think it's a good system. That's yeah, correct. Comments on the system first and then maybe second yeah. uh, what you'd do with it if you were in that program. I think it's a good system. I don't know all the details. I haven't talked about it. Just what, what you well, just I just made it, it up yeah. just now. So. Okay. Um, <laughs> I do think it's a good system. I am an artist. I'm a musician. I'm a filmmaker. Um, and so it's something I would love to have access to and strive to, to strive to do. Um, essentially, the Peel Project, which we were talking about in the last program, uh, we made that happen by Canada Council Grant and crowdsourcing. So the Indiegogo campaign, we did a Canada Council grant. Um, we raised enough money to get 12 people to the Yukon for a month. And then that was it. Um, and then all the post-production was our labor, our time, in-kind services. Um, and so to have a stable structure where you can do a project correctly and properly with the right funding and not skimp um, would be amazing. Uh, that being said, I'm a musician. I know a lot of amazing musicians and bands in Toronto uh, and in the country whose music not to sound like a downer, but it is not going to see – most people aren't going to hear it. It's not going to see the light of day. There's a lot of amazing talent that's just not going to happen. Um, or it will happen but won't be heard. And I think if there's a way to get that out, that would be wonderful. Um, I don't necessarily believe this. I would love that kind of program. But I think there's also the capitalist approach of like if it's more competitive and people are forced to do it um, – 
it's going to get weaned out, and ideally the caliber will be better. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think the model we have right now is perfect, and I think there's a lot of people who aren't great content that's not getting out there. Those, those are my thoughts. Yeah, and I, also, I think too that uh, the it's not necessarily based on. I mean, the music that does make it or the bands that do make it. It's not necessarily based on musical merit. No, not at all. It's not based on uh, something uh, of that nature, yeah. right? There's so many variables involved uh, that are the reason why you hear so- an artist on the radio as opposed to another artist that you don't hear, and it's nothing to do with their the integrity of their their music. You I know, completely agree with that. Um, I I. I, I the, the thing that's come to my mind, and I don't know how this quite ties in with the conversation, it kind of does, I guess, is if there was any way that I could facilitate getting more real estate in the, the city uh, to offer and to, to turn into and facilitate uh, live workspaces and art making spaces and programs for free for marginalized uh, uh, folks and – the physical space in the urban centers is key for art making and creative uh, uh, creative facilitation. And in Toronto, especially, uh, those those places are disappearing really fast. Uh, and we have so many of these spaces that have been sort of mixed use that uh, have accommodated so many creative talents, like designers and photographers, musicians and uh, artists and startup businesses, you know, that need that space of living and working. And uh, people benefit from this culturally within the city that don't even realize how much we benefit from having these spaces downtown and accessible and we're losing those spaces so quickly to, to condos. And um, I would say, I don't know if this ties in, but if I had more time or if I had more um, agency to be able to bring together powers to save real estate and save these buildings and turn them into spaces that where art can be made and not, and, uh, and also open it up for people that don't have the monetary um, resources to do what they want to do and pursue what they want to do. Like have free programming, you know, for marginalized youth, having free programming, coming and rec- uh, recording a whole album for free, you know, have other, have other companies in this building that maybe have more money that pay, help pay and facilitate these programs to happen. That's what I would want to spend more of my time on if I had more free time as, as an artist, not only to produce my own work, which, uh, which is key and what I need to, it keeps me sane, right, to, to uh, express myself artistically and musically, but beyond that, facilitate other artists that maybe don't have the same privileges that I have. Uh, or the same um, support that I have to be able to do what I do and help them and 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 keep keep artists thriving right here in the city instead of pushing them out. I was going to jump on that. I live in a live workspace uh, in Toronto, and two weeks ago we got a notice. We're not not official notice, but we're getting the boot. Where is that? Uh, Dupont and Ossington. Wow, that's where I live. Are we in the same I live right there. No, I live at Shaw okay. Shaw and Dupont. So uh, I, know, I know the building. Yeah, you're talking so about. there's there's a yeah exactly. There's a lot of development, and um, I'm personally in that space right now. Where it's like I have a, a studio space, and we gotta get the boot. And so oh man, it, it's looking for alternative space in the city is very very challenging. Yeah, and it's like yeah, 
to, and it's, a, it's a unique situation, right? To be able to have that kind of setup yeah, uh, where I'm you can live and work and actively looking for alternatives in the city right now. And there are very, very few. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even people who are like artscape buildings are like four owners from they're having a lot of issues and they're getting their yep. rent increase. It's like big organizations that are trying to do that. 401 Richmond is a prime example yeah, of that. And too. that are, they're getting pushed. Yep. Yeah. So if, if I can just jump in for a second, um, um, I am not an artist in any way, shape, or form. I'm a huge fan of artists. And, and you facilitate is. so many other artists to do their thing, I like too, to do so. my part where I can. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's good. But um, uh, I, I spent way more years than were good for my mental and physical health in the business world. Um, and uh, so I can't help but still look at things uh, through a bit of uh, corporate or um, economic sense. Uh, and a lens. And one of the things that I've been uh, really um, intrigued by over the last couple of years is the increasing number of places and locations and times when people are experimenting with this very idea of minimum income um, and a base level of support for all citizens, not just the artists. I mean, the artists um, have a, have a, a, a very strong case uh, for that particular uh, piece of our culture. But it's, it, it's also true for everybody, and mm-hmm. it has been documented time and time again how much money is saved by giving people uh, – uh, providing them the opportunity to find a place, um, to, uh, a stable place to live and have a permanent residence and have a really concrete address that they can put on a resume and receive a phone – a place where they can receive a phone call and where they can have a healthy living accommodation so that they're not um, running to the emergency room for every little sniffle and, and not to trivialize that at all. But because they don't have a, a, a stable place to live, it's often a challenge to get decent health care. And, um, and so overall, if we look at the total cost, which so many of our environmental issues boil back down to, that we, we manage to hide costs and, or ignore them rather than hide them. Um, but if we do, do an honest accounting of the total cost of a given situation, um, as a society, it saves us a, a ton of money. Uh, to have people in stable uh, environments, mm-hmm. and so I think there's a there's also a growing and a strong and growing uh, case to be made uh, for the wisdom of such an approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think and Bob, thank you so much for picking up on that. Uh, that was sort of where I was going with it, which is the the idea. And uh, there was recently an example, I believe it was Saskatoon. I could be wrong, but uh, up north and and west of Ontario, uh, somewhere uh, where there was a, a mayor. Um, of uh, the township or, or where, wherever this specifically – I'm not sure if the extent of the story. But the point was was that he was against uh, some form of local uh, housing initiative. Not because he was – you know, was, he was – to hear him say it, he was saying like, look, I'm not like an enemy of poor people. Uh, it's that I didn't – you know, I thought this was, you know, government overreach and, and you know, it was going to cost us a bunch of money. And maybe there's there's got to be a better way to solve this problem. And he lost the voter or whatever it was. I'm sorry for being so fuzzy on the details, but the sort of the details aren't important. What's important was that this got put into place despite his reservations. And he went to the city finance office or whatever it was, and it turns out they were saving buttloads of money by just giving people housing, just giving it to them. Than it was to regulate all the problems necessary to give them all the support, mm-hmm. and and I think this is really the conversation we're starting to have these days. Where how much money do we spend on departments, entire buildings full of people paid? I might add, very healthy government wages, uh, very secure, uh, low pressure uh, government wages and and jobs to administer services for people. When if you actually do the full cost counting, it's exponentially cheaper to just give the artist the you know. 
$18,000 a year, we're not offering them Rolls Royces, right? Like artists are usually pretty used to uh, skimping by and living frugal lifestyles. We're not talking about a lot of money here. And then it may in fact be just financially more prudent to just stop trying to regulate the whole process and just say, look, you know, artists are never going to be a significant portion. Well, not in the foreseeable future, a significant portion of Canada's GDP. Uh, artists are going out making art, there's all this art, knowing that they're going into a lifestyle where there's almost certainty that they'll never be rich. And they're doing it anyway. And they're doing it anyway because they're passionate about what they do and it matters to them. And these folks are going to be doing it regardless of what we do. And I'm just saying that if that's the case, if artists are going to be doing art, and I hope they do regardless, that it may in fact be cheaper and we'll get more art. And I think I really, Jeff, love where you went with that, that whole bit about um, – uh, you know, maybe some of these people wouldn't do art. Maybe they would run art classes for disadvantaged youth, or they would run uh, art uh, classes as a way of building community with immigrant communities, and you know, come and share art, and we'll all learn from each other. This could have tremendous benefit for Canada as a society, and potentially, I don't know, I haven't done the numbers, but there are cases of examples of where this could, in addition to all of those benefits, and in addition to making millions of Canadians' lives better for a variety of reasons, um, actually save us a bundle of dough in the meantime. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm pretty passionate about this whole policy tone that's at least being discussed now. Mm-hmm. You know, not by the liberals, but uh, by a major party. By even Elizabeth May has been talking about this as a serious platform issue. So I think we're starting to have this conversation. Um, I think too that uh, it, it's kind of a it, the idea of providing a sound. A living space, like 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 Bob was touching on, where somebody has a place to go that they can call home, where they are fed, or able have access to food, to have have basically basic needs. If everyone had access to basic needs, everybody, um, and had a sense of self worth or sense of purpose, or had access to that, and wasn't always dealing with the stress on the system of trying to survive or trying to deal with the barriers that so many people face, how many other things would just take care of themselves? You know what I mean? Like when we talk about the economy, well, we got to focus on the economy. Let's not worry about people. We talk about economy, but economy is, it's, you cannot separate the two, right? And if you have a society full of people that have a sense of self-worth, self-purpose, a purpose, have a place to live, have a solid foundation, I really believe a lot of those other problems that we talk about that seem unrelated actually will kind of take care of themselves. I think that's – it seems so basic in a way, right? Like take care of humans first. I think most other things kind of will take care of themselves, and and the basic income thing is is pointing towards that of at least giving people a ba- a, a base or a, a foundation, you know. Yeah, I think it it just would just exponentially be a positive thing. So many other ways. I, I'm thinking. Okay, so I'm coming at this from a slightly different perspective. Um, so I do make music and art occasionally. However, the vast majority of the grants I write are basically for to fund projects, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, I do study music. So basically any project I do is based around, you know, I have to convince the government to give me money because a study of, you know, X is, is you know, warranted Y. Now, that's where I think the economic factor comes in important, at least in a, someone in my position, perhaps even in an artist position as well. Because in this sense, we submit a grant and say it doesn't go forward. They will say to you, this does not benefit, you know, anyone or something along these lines because we all have our interests we want to pursue but we don't like even an artist right an artist wants to make this 
but what would the function of that art be in a society, mm -hmm. right? So the economics, to a certain degree, focuses attention where it sort of needs to be, for at least for an academic anyway. Like, and I'm not, I'm not saying that these people's motives are entirely, you know, always trustable, right? Like, for example, when they say we want, we want to give grants to people who are studying Aboriginal music this year, um, we. You, you can't ignore the fact that perhaps the Aboriginal population is upset with the government and maybe there's a reason why they're doing this, you know, encouraging certain things. But nevertheless, it, in some cases, it will focus your research into a direction that will say, hmm, well, that is only going to benefit me. How can this project be reframed to benefit the wider mm -hmm. world, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, where I do agree that giving everyone um, – Equal footing, I mean, is actually very important because you're right, the problems will solve themselves. But in a way, the limiting factors are what direct attention to the ideas that need to be solved or to the problems that need to be solved in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, it's, I think it's a little more nuanced than the problems will solve themselves, whereas we may encounter all new problems that would resolve themselves, but current issues might go ignored without, you know, um, some, some, for, some form of institutional intervention of pushing us in a different direction. But that, yeah. that's also a limitation on what you can do, too. So, I mean, again, it's a really complicated, nuanced issue, right? Yeah, and there are people that face barriers that I have never yeah. faced, right? Like, I, I consider that I've lived a pretty privileged life. Uh, I mean, relatively speaking, at my worst, I've lived still a life of luxury compared to, compared to a lot of people in the world. Right. So, um, it... <sighs> I, I feel like there are a lot of people that face um, insurmountable challenges that are in that are embedded in a in a system, right? That, right. That I don't necessarily face. That's an important. So that's there. that's that I think is a kind of a key distinction too, right? Yeah. Like um, creating competition or creating the drive or comp that's one thing, but that's talking about people that are in a position to be able right. to do that, right? So we and not everybody is and. That's where I think the the idea of having that basic income, at least you're establishing something, just the basic needs that, that, that yeah. you need to at least start. Because there's sure. a lot of people that don't even have that. They're spending all of their time trying to find a place to live. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And that's taking up all your time, the stress to the system, to the healthcare system. On top of that, it's that's huge. Mm -hmm. You know, if there wasn't the stress on on humans in that sense, gen and I'm general generalizing, um, there would be less stress in the healthcare system, which means there, there you know what I mean? There's, yeah. So, the the stress of trying to survive without this minimum, um, on top of barriers that people face, whether it's racially, whether it's gender, mm -hmm. uh, there's so many reasons uh, why. Uh, people might face barriers that are beyond their control. Of course. That base idea of a basic minimum for everyone kind of gets through that or gets beyond those potentially anyway, you know? Yeah, and I think if I can jump in really quickly here, and, and just also we're, we're at nearing 20 minutes, so thank you so much for a hearty discussion. Mm. I'm happy to go on as long as you want, but just so you guys keep a track of the time. Uh, the, the one thing I wanted to stick in there as well and sort of maybe broaden this a little bit, but I wanted to sort of address, uh, Steve, maybe where you were going was that under my sort of full plan that I just made up in my head, well, not really. I've been working on this stuff for a while, but the, the idea would be sort of is that the, the arts wouldn't be the only thing you could do right. and that there, we would still have uh, these boards uh but the boards instead of granting money would simply approve projects right so right. artists uh, would just get more right yeah no, well, artists would get more. but there, the idea would be is that like you know you're so you're not totally off the leash right so yeah. you, you have to you're there's some accountability you have to submit a certain number of uh, you know you have to uh, submit a certain number, number of pieces they're yeah. approved 
per month or per year, say me per year, I think makes a lot more sense for artists and musicians seeing on the timeline they work on. Uh, but like, let's say you can't, right? Let's mm-hmm. say the project you submit get turned down um, to still qualify for this guaranteed minimum income. Let's say uh, you would simply be able to do so. There would be a number of areas. Maybe right. uh, some people really like working outdoors. Um, so great, guaranteed minimum income, and you're now part of the parks department, and you're going to walk around picking up trash or planting gardens or uh, cleaning up waterways or like we could have a, mm-hmm. a number of these areas. So say you're the artist and say you just, you're working on stuff that, that they're just not, they're not having it. You know, we don't need another documentary about video games. Right. Um, sorry, filmmaker. Um, and they're talking to me <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, so, but you have to, you have, you know, 70 hours you need to fill up. So you're going to get, you, you know, go volunteer, you know, go clean up some waterways or go do some gardens or go, uh, or maybe, uh, Hey, here's another one for you, Steve. Uh, what about, uh, uh, providing research? This is valuable. We're going to suggest right. some areas where we want research done. Uh, we're going to give you the formats on how we want these submitted. And for an astronomically low price compared to what governments usually pay, yeah. uh, we're going to have all this research done. And to counterbalance the fact that these are students largely probably and maybe not professionals, we're going to have – we're going to let uh, the, the – uh, what, what a um, – a uh, security uh, analyst would call the the brute force attempt to beat a security password, which is that you try every combination until it works. So we'll have 50 people write 50 papers on this topic right. to create some sort of meta study, right? Like we could do this for a number of areas and there's so many things that we need as a country and we can't find a way to pay for it. Well, if we have a bunch of folks who are can't survive, they have skills for two or three years, maybe they, 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 paint paintings and help clean up the waterways we get a great deal cost effectively for that and then this provides them the security they need to then take the next step in their life and become a full-time you know non-minimum income you know commercial musician or a research scientist or whatever i mean this could be the stepping stone to not only get a bunch of services on the cheap for canada that we need that would improve all of our lives and improve these people's lives by giving them that stepping stone that they need to get onto their thing and and stop Mm -hmm. worrying day to day about surviving and if you know a couple hundred thousand artists are happy spending the rest of their life on 18000 or $21,000 a year and, and producing art, and that's what makes them happy, then I say that's better for everybody. Yeah. You know, God yeah. bless. And, and I'm also not saying that that guarantee minimum is going to solve everything. There are systemic issues with racism and, and um, marginalization that continue and would continue with that. I just think that it would at least be – it would be a start anyway. And there are examples, right, in the world. I think there is – I can't remember where it is in Europe. I think it's a, a a city in Europe somewhere. I'm fuzzy on these details. That is experimenting with this very thing, and they are actually going to. And actually, maybe Ontario is actually in in, somewhere Scotia in. The, is also, it Nova Scotia? They're yeah, experimenting. Ontario, they're thinking about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. So there are places to go to look to see where this is brewing, anyway, as as a real on the ground thing. So. All right. Well, we're now officially at almost 25 minutes. Thank you so much, guys, for a really interesting discussion. And thank you so much for for all being parts in various ways in today's show. Uh, Thank you for your time. And thank you, listener, for listening to this week's uh, Green Majority Bonus Show. Take care.